Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to take up today John chapter 10, verses 1 through 21. This is the story of the Good Shepherd, Jesus. The context is, well, the previous context is John chapter 9, the whole chapter in which Jesus healed a man born blind, told him to wash his eyes in the pool of Siloam, and he would receive his sight, at which and he did it on the Sabbath, and so the Pharisees got mad at Jesus, and they had a big rip-roaring Sabbath controversy and controversy with the Pharisees. That's what, where we were. Some people debate about whether this story of the Good Shepherd happened at that same Feast of Tabernacles, or shortly thereafter, or whether it was several months later, going from the fall to the winter of that year, uh, in the last year of Jesus' ministry at the Feast of Dedication. I don't think there's any way of knowing for sure. So I'll, we will just say, just for the sake of argument, that it happened it followed right on the the story of the jesus healing the man born blind so let's start with john 10 verses 1 through 2 i assure you this is jesus speaking anyone who doesn't enter the sheep pen by the door but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber the one who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep now there are a lot of details in this parable that jesus is going to use and jesus shifts from one he shifts the symbolism from one physical object to another. So let's get it all straight. We have a sheep pen. We have a door to the sheep pen. We have a doorkeeper of the sheep pen. We have the shepherd who walks in through the door. We have a thief and a robber that comes in over the top. And we have a hireling, somebody who is a shepherd who's hired to look after the sheep. And Jesus goes from one metaphor to another. It's very easy to interpret if you understand what Jesus is talking about. The Pharisees didn't. We need to, we do need to keep straight the details, especially when Jesus shifts his metaphors. All right, first of all, anyone who doesn't enter the sheep pen by the door but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. Who is that referred to? That's referring to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the bad guys. The sheep pen, of course, refers to Jesus's people. Pharisees, of course, are going to climb into the sheep pen in order to rob. Jesus's people away from him, maybe kill them, I don't know, do bad things to them. But the one who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Now, somebody who comes in by the door is someone who comes in without guile. He comes in without hypocrisy and deceit. But the one who comes in over the wall, as John Gill puts it, is a false Christ, a false prophet, a scribe, a Pharisee, a wicked hireling priest, an ungodly minister of some sorts. Jameson Fawcett and Brown calls these thieves and robbers those who assume spiritual guidance of people without the seal of heaven. Of course, the application to the present-day church is obvious. They are, ladies and gentlemen, hirelings, false thieves and robbers who come in to Christians and they completely rob them blind. I could give you personal examples. Not They never did it to me because I wouldn't let them, but I know somebody who tried to do it to me and did it to a good friend of mine. Almost ruin his life. You got to watch out for people like that. Just like Jesus is telling his people to watch out for the scribes and Pharisees. And by the way, Jesus is telling this to these scribes and Pharisees. He says, I assure you, we assume he's still talking about the Pharisees as, as he was in the last chapter. Now, Jesus, who goes in straight through the door, is the shepherd of the sheep. Now, let's look at th- this shepherd analogy is very common in the Old Testament. Here's some Old Testament scriptures where God is called a shepherd. Psalm 81, listen, shepherd of Israel, who leads Joseph like a flock. Psalm 23:1. the Lord is my shepherd. Isaiah 40, 10 verses, 
Isaiah 40, verses 10 through 11. He protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arm and carries them in the fold of his garment. He gently leads those who are for nursing. Ezekiel 34, verses 11 through 16. Of course, this is the famous shepherd chapter in Ezekiel 34. It has good shepherds and false shepherds in here. Here's where he talks about the good shepherd. Ezekiel 34:12. As a shepherd looks for his sheep on the day, he is among his scattered flock. So I will look for my flock. I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a cloudy and dark day. Dropping down to verse 13. I will shepherd them on the mountains of Israel. And so forth. Now, the Old Testament also has stories about false shepherds. So again, Jesus is, is drawing on common allusions, common metaphors uh, from his Jewish culture, his Jewish background, and his listeners' Jewish background. Isaiah 56, 9 through 12. All you animals of the field and forest come and eat. Israel's watchmen are blind, all of them. They're mute dogs, etc. They bark, they dream, they lie down, they love to sleep. These dogs have fierce appetites, they never have enough, and they are shepherds, shifting the metaphor from nasty dogs to shepherds who have no discernment. All of them turn to their own way, every last one for his own gain. Uh, there's allusions to false shepherds in Ezekiel 34, which I won't go over. Jeremiah 23:1. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. Okay, so there's false shepherds. Uh, perhaps we could apply the false shepherd idea to the one who crawls over the, doesn't go in through the door of the sheep bin, but climbs over the wall in some other way. False shepherds. And Jesus is aiming right at the Pharisees. They don't understand this, but he's aiming this story right at the Pharisees. Now, a sheep pen back then, we think of a hog wire fence, maybe. No, it was a solid wall, an open courtyard, open to the sky with a solid wall with a door in the front. So that's why somebody would be climbing over the wall. What was the purpose of the sheep pen? Well, it was to keep sheep from wandering, to protect sheep from wild animals. And, of course, the idea is, is that the shepherd has all the sheep together uh, protected, but then somebody climbs over the wall and tries to get one of the sheep. And the good shepherd sometimes has to lead the shepherd out from his place of the sheep out from his place of protection, out where to further places in the kingdom, whatever. Because sometimes sheep have to move, and the shepherd keeps the sheep safe, even when they're together, flock together, or when they're moving from place to place. Doesn't matter; they're they're kept safe. Now, the sheep in the sheep pen, of course or a symbolic reference to the church, as John Gill points out. We can drop down to verse 16 in this chapter, 10, and read this. But I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, as the Gentiles, and they will listen to my voice. There will be one flock, one shepherd. Here's how John Gill puts it. Quote, Separated from the world, it is where the people of God and sheep of Christ are gathered together, where there is a strict union between them. Have society with each other. Keep one another warm and comfortable, and where they are fed and nourished, and are preserved, and where they lie down and have rest. And I guess we should point out, here's an application. Christians need a church. They need a church that can protect them, that can give them rest. That's God's plan. That's the way he made it. And I say that in this time of terrible uh, downgrade, the terrible situation the church is in today, where it's real hard to find a good one. I don't care how hard it is to find a good one. You need to find one. Because that's how God meant for you to be protected and raised up and nourished. Now let's look at this metaphor of sheep. Christians are called sheep. This is how John Gill, uh, excuse me, Jameson Fawcett and Brown describe the sheep. Quote, this simple creature has this special note among all animals. 
that it quickly hears the voice of the shepherd. It follows no one else, depends entirely on him, and seeks help from him alone. Cannot help itself, but is shut up to another's aid. In other words, the sheep are very particular about the shepherds they follow. And this is Jesus' point. Be particular about the shepherds you follow. Don't just go following some nut, nut job on the Internet. Don't follow anybody unless you hear Jesus' voice in the voice of that shepherd. John Gill describes the sheep this way. Harmless and inoffensive in their lives and conversations, and yet are exposed to the malice, cruelty, and butchery of men, and are meek and patient under sufferings, and are clean, social, and profitable. It's a good analogy. Christians are weak. We need to follow the voice of Jesus, and we're subject to getting slaughtered. Let's now move on to John 10, verse 3. The doorkeeper opens it for him. That's the door to the sheep pen, the sheepfold. And again, we have another element of the story introduced here, a doorkeeper who opens the door for the shepherd. Now, it's interesting. Nobody knows what this doorkeeper is. The NIV translates it as watchman. So there was somebody that was in charge of the a large sheep pen, the large sheepfold. Several flocks were kept there. Now, here's some objects as to some options as to who this doorkeeper might perhaps refer to. This is what people have speculated. Michael the Archangel, the Virgin Mary, Peter, Moses, the ministers of the gospel, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. Well, here's the best option right here. This is John Calvin's option, as quoted by Jameson Fawcett and Brown. The doorkeeper is an allusion to no particular person. It refers symbolically to the right of free access. And I think that's the answer right there, because the doorkeeper obviously doesn't refer to anybody in particular. Now, notice I said this watchman is in charge of several flocks of sheep there. Well, the shepherd comes in and he calls his own sheep by name. In other words, there's some sheep in there that don't belong to him. Now, the idea here is, is that Jesus chooses his own sheep to separate them out from the other sheep, the sheep that are in the world, if you will, or you could say the, Jew, the non-believing Jews. He, he calls the believing Jews out from the non-believing Jews, and the believing Jews hear Jesus' voice because they know their master's voice. And this is the way sh sheep are. You can get a, several flocks of sheep, and the let's say you got flock A, flock B, and flock C all mixed together, and shepherd A comes in and calls, come here, sheep. Well, only the sheep, only sheep A are going to answer that call because they recognize their master's voice, their shepherd's voice. And so likewise, Jesus will call his own sheep out of the, out of the mass of non-believers, and the believers are going to hear that call, and they're going to follow Jesus. And he leads them out. And, you know, some people say he leads them out into the kingdom and glory, as Adam Clark says. I don't know why you can't just say he leads them out and separates them out from the mass of other non-believing sheep. Makes sense to me. It kind of cuts against the metaphor of the sheep pen protecting the sheep because they're going out of a place of protection. So that is a little bit of a problem there, but... I don't have any problem with that because Jesus is going to lead the sheep out. And what is he going to do? He's going to lead them right into another sheepfold. The shepherd's going to lead them into another sheepfold. Except this sheepfold is only going to have believing sheep in it. And they're going to be protected as they as they pasture, pasture together in the church. We go to verse 10. Oh, let me back up a minute here. The NIV study Bible points out this phrase here in verse 3. He calls his own sheep. That's what I just said. He, he separated out his own sheep. The NIV study Bible says the shepherd didn't call all the sheep randomly. Come here, sheep A, B, and C. Come here, Pharisee sheep, unbelieving sheep, believing sheep. No. He only called those sheep who belonged to him. Now, I think you might be able to see some theological implications here. 
this is a very good thought for Arminians to contemplate. Does Jesus call everybody to follow him in salvation, or does he call his own sheep? John, the whole book of John is a nightmare for Arminians. That's why I'm not an Arminian, because I believe the book of John. It's too much shucking and jiving, too much special pleading by Arminians to get around the plain implications of many of the verses in John. Now, he calls his own sheep by name. That means he knows who his sheep is, as Jesus knows who you are. This is an allusion to Eastern shepherds who gave names to their sheep. John Gill says that this calling of the sheep by name shows Christ's exact and distinct knowledge of his disciples. He knows every hair of your head, and that's who he's calling. So when Jesus calls you, he calls you because he loves you, and he knows you, and he knows your name. He knows who you are. John 10, verse 4. When he has brought all his own outside, he goes ahead of them. The sheep follow him because they recognize his voice. So once Jesus has called you out of the mass of unbelieving sheep, he leads. Now, a Palestinian shepherd led a sheep. He didn't drive his sheep. The sheep followed because they knew his voice. That's why they followed. The, sheep, the shepherd didn't have to get behind with a stick and beat him on the rump to get the sheep to go where he wanted the sheep to go. Application time. This is a good thought for so many modern church pastors who drive their sheep. Church pastors. Pastor comes from shepherd. Poor man, shepherd. A, so a, a church elder, a church shepherd is supposed to lead his sheep. Just like Jesus leads his sheep. What an example that we have in Jesus leading his sheep. Church pastors are supposed to lead their flock. 1 Peter 5, 2-3. Shepherd God's flock among you. Not overseeing out of compulsion, but freely, according to God's will, but not for the money, but eagerly. Verse 3. 1 Peter 5. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. An example is a leader which somebody imitates. There is no indication anywhere in the scripture of the pastors, shepherds, overseers, in churches, beating their sheep and leading them to get them to go where they want to go. And they don't use guilt either. Well, you know, if you really love Jesus, you'd give another $100 to the building fund and all that kind of nonsense. Any Christians that subject to that ought to look at their pastor and say, I'm out of here. I'm not going to participate in your guilt trips. John 10, verses 5 through 6. They, the sheep, will never follow a stranger. Instead, they will run away from him because they don't recognize the voice of strangers. Jesus gave them this illustration, but they did not understand what he was telling them. They, the Pharisees, didn't understand. Of course they didn't understand. They were the thieves. They were the robbers. They were the false shepherds who were calling out to God's people, come here, come here, come here. But the true followers of Jesus will not, would not hear that voice, would not understand that voice, would not recognize that voice because they, they only recognize the voice of Jesus. And I'm telling you if, you, if you develop a close relationship with Jesus, you're not going to be troubled by false doctrine. There's a lot of false doctrine out there. And every time you hear a story about a church that's been snookered by false doctrine, I, the first thing I ask is, why did the sheep believe that nonsense? Sure, it's despicable that the false teacher, the heretic, the false shepherd, led the people down the primrose path, but why did the people follow? Because they're not listening to their shepherd Jesus, that's why. So it's, it's just as much your fault as the shepherd's fault if you get led into error. And when I mean error, I mean substantial error. I don't mean you've got to disagree on every little minor detail but I'm talking about getting led into a serious error that destroys your life or destroys the church. John 10, verses 5 through 6. They, the sheep, will never follow a stranger. Instead, they will run away from him. I think I just read that. I did just read that. He's talking to the Pharisees. 
He's saying, these sheep are never going to follow you. You keep thinking that you have the Old Testament kingdom of God. You're in charge of it, and all the Jews are going to set up a, a kingdom. It's eventually the Messiah is going to come and get rid of the Romans and, and let you Jews run the whole world. That ain't going to happen because the true sheep, the ones who follow me, are not going to listen to you. Now, this parable was easy as pie to interpret, but the Pharisees were really, really spiritually stupid not to see what Jesus was driving at. Of course they were. They were blind. John 10, 7 through 9. So Jesus said again, I assure you, I am the door of the sheep. Jesus shifts metaphor here. He was the shepherd in the previous verses, and now he's the door. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. And that's, by the way, is the reason why you leave the sheepfold. You go out so you can eat. You know, you can stay in the sheepfold protected, but sooner or later you've got to go out to eat. Jesus protects you in the sheepfold and out in the pasture, and he will draw you out from all the non-believing sheep. So all who came in before Jesus, Jesus is referring to the false shepherds like the Pharisees, as the NIV study Bible points out. He's, of course he's not referring to Old Testament prophets. Those were true prophets. Now notice that this door, like I say, he used to be the shepherd, now he's the door. The door leads in two different directions. To the way in, that leads to salvation and safety, to the way out, to pasture, which refers to the supply of all the Christians' needs. I mentioned that earlier. Then I've study Bible puts that more succinctly than I did. And notice that you will be saved as a sheep that listens to Jesus' voice. If anyone enters by me, by Jesus, he will be saved or kept safe, as the NIV margin has. You will be perfectly safe in Jesus. You don't need to, about the word, need to worry about global climate change, all the glaciers are going to melt and there's diseases inside the glaciers and they're going to come in and they're going to get you and they're going to kill you and all this absolute errant chick, absolutely errant chicken little nonsense that our culture is scaring itself to death with. John 10 verse 10, a thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Why does that thief come over the wall? He's not going over there to lead those sheep anywhere. Not into safety, to keep them in safety in the pen or lead them out to the pasture for supply. He's coming to eat them. Of course, that's what he's saying about the Pharisees. You are trying to kill God's people. You're trying to steal God's people from him. You're trying to destroy God's people. I have come that they may have life and have it in abundance. Not just a little bit of life, folks. A lot of life. That's what abundance means. Now, that doesn't mean you're not going to go through trials, of course, but God always delivers you from trials. And when we die, we're going to have even more abundant eternal life, as Jesus called it on many occasions. That's why it pays to listen to the shepherd. And that's why it pays to avoid thieves and robbers who are coming over the wall of the sheep pen. Don't listen to these people. John 10, verse 11 through 13, Jesus continues, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired man, since he is not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, leaves them and runs away when he sees a wolf coming. The wolf then snatches and scatters them. This happens because he is a hired man and doesn't care about the sheep. Oh, this is the famous hireling verse. You don't hear many professional paid clergymen in the Church of Jesus Christ today talk about this verse too much, I don't think, because they are suspiciously similar to hirelings, people who are hired to look after the sheep. We pay you a salary and you come pastor us. Whoa, that's a little too close for comfort. Well, that's why I don't believe in paid pastors is because of verses like this. There's other reasons too. There is no, and I include, what is it, 2 Timothy 5, 17? 
was it First Timothy five seventeen? I can't even remember. I think it's Second Timothy, where the the elders who work hard are supposed to get double honor. Yeah, that's a gift. It's nothing wrong with giving, but paying somebody a salary, hiring somebody to do a job, that's not a ministry gift. A gift is something you give to the congregation. Elders give to the congregation just like anybody else in the congregation gives their gifts to the body. You don't pay them. And besides, honor, the Greek word time, the elders worthy of double honor. There's a perfectly good Greek word. Forgot the word now, opsion, something like that, uh, which uh, stands for wages. If 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 Paul had meant the, the shepherd is worthy of double wages, he would have used the Greek word for wages. But he didn't. He used the Greek word for gift, like an honorarium. But anyway, that's off the subject here. Hirelings, I think, are a bad way to go in the Christian church today as far as the application. Now, going back to the original intent here, Jesus is talking about he's contrasting himself between the hired man, the, who he shifts the metaphor now between the thief and the robber. Now he's talking about a hired man, somebody who's been hired to look after the sheep. This hired man is like the Pharisees. They're in it for the money. They're in it for the power. They're not in it because they love the sheep. They're in it because their traditions hired them. He doesn't really care about the sheep because he doesn't own the sheep. So as soon as trouble comes, as soon as the wolf comes, the hired man leaves and runs away. But not a shepherd. He loves those sheep. He knows them by name. He cares about the sheep. So when the wolf comes, he's going to take the wolf and bash his head against the wall. Now when he says in verse 11 the good shepherd when jesus says this the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep he's referring to his crucifixion which is coming shortly and he's what he's saying is i'm going to i'm going to die for these sheep these same sheep that you pharisees are putting burdens on that they can't bear the same sheep that you're bleeding to death now the niv study bible says a palestinian shepherd might risk danger to protect his sheep but he did expect to come out alive now if he's risking danger when he's fighting off a wolf or something. But Jesus goes further than just subjecting himself to risk of death. He is going to actually die to save his sheep from eternal death. Now, I mentioned hirelings when I started this verse. It's amazing to me how well this ver these verses apply to leaders in the modern church of Christ. I've already said that. And it's interesting to me that three of my basic commentators all reference hirelings in the church of their day, which is back in the 1800s. Why don't we talk about it more today? By the way, I'm speaking uh, about two or three days after Benny Hinn renounced the prosperity message. I don't know how sincere this is. I don't know how far it's going to go, but so far it sounds pretty good. He said if, any, he, if he was on a platform with somebody that asked for $1,000 that God would multiply, please send $1,000 to my ministry, he would denounce him publicly in front of the TV cameras. I think he said he would walk off. I can't remember, but he's not participating in that anymore. Well, hallelujah. I hope that's true. John 10, verses 14 through 15. I am the good shepherd. Jesus is speaking, of course. I know my own sheep, and they know me. As the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. What he's talking about, of course, is I'm going to die for the sheep when I die on the cross. Now, this word know shows up a lot here, and you always have to distinguish the two types of knowing. Most languages have a distinction between the two. French does, Chinese does, and, and Greek does. English doesn't. For example, if I say, I know how to work that algebra problem, or I know that Mars exists, well, that doesn't mean you have a personal relationship with Mars or with your algebra problem. But if I say, I know my wife, or I know my good friends, that means I have a close personal intimate relationship with them. Two different words in all those three languages I just mentioned. We don't have it in English, so we need to distinguish here. Jesus is talking about an intimate relationship with, with 
him. He says, I know my own sheep. The best example of this is Adam knew Eve. Adam didn't know that Eve existed. He didn't say, yeah, there's a woman in here that uh, I know who she is. I know how tall she is. I know what she looks like. No. He had sexual intercourse with her. That's what the word no means there, which, of course, is the closest type of intimate relationship that human beings can have. So when Jesus is saying, I know my own sheep, it means I have a close intimate relationship with my believers. And they know me. They have a close intimate relationship with me. And the as as and what how can and Jesus compares that close intimate relationship of the sheep and Jesus, he compares that relationship with the relationship of the Father and the Son. Verse fifteen: As the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Jesus has a close personal intimate relationship with the Father, and the Father has a close personal intimate relationship with Jesus. Now, let's carry that a little bit further. Let's show. Another verse which shows that Christians know God the Father. They, God the Father. We've already shown in this verse that Christians have a close, intimate relationship with the Shepherd, with Jesus. But now let's look at Matthew 11:27, and we'll see that Christians also have a close, intimate relationship with God the Father. They know God the Father. Matthew 11:27. All things have been entrusted to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son. He's saying the same thing in Matthew, as he said in John 10, 14, and 15. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except, except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him, the Father. So Jesus desires his sheep to know the Father. Jesus reveals the Father to the, to the sheep, and that means that we can know the maker of this universe. Now, I've, spent, I've just spent a lot of probably wasted time reading the history of philosophy from Pat Plato and Aristotle, and I'm already up to the 19th century. And... It is amazing to me how many of the philosophers who want to keep the idea of God, it just bothers them just to completely throw God out. So they constantly talk about God, the absolute, the unknowing, the absolute spirit. They've got all kind of nice names for the, the, the unmoved mover, as Aristotle put it. They come up with all these names trying to know what God is, but they don't have a clue as to who God is because they don't have a relationship with him. Well, we are promised here. Let me repeat this. I'm going to... Name all possible relationships, father and son, number one. Number two, son and father. Number three, father and sheep. Number four, son and sheep. I think that's all four possible relationships here, and every one of them is described by that word no. Let's first of all take the father and the son. Verse John 10, verse 15. As the Father knows me, that's the Father and the Son. Let's take the Son and the Father. And I know the Father, verse 15. That's two of them. Now let's talk about the Father and the sheep. That's in Matthew 11, verse 27. No one knows the Father except anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal the Father. So that's the Father and the sheep. Now let's talk about the Son and the sheep. That's John 10, 14. I know my own sheep and they know me. If you really sit down and go through these verses, you realize what a privilege it is to know Jesus. Because you know the, the maker of the universe. That's who you know. And somebody that you're that close with, he's not going to let you down. He's going to be faithful. He's going to take care of you like a shepherd takes care of a sheep. Here's another verse talking about knowing. The, Jesus knowing, or maybe maybe God. Second Timothy 2.19, the Lord knows those who are his. The Lord knows those who are his. The whole verse says this, Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, having this inscription, The Lord knows those who are his. Pictured a, a building there on the foundation. It says, The Lord, I'm assuming that means God there. God knows those who are his. 
It's one of my favorite words. The Greek word is gnosko, to know. Do a word study on that one time. It'll, it'll, it'll make you edified, and I will mention this too. It's a good antidote or a good balance to those who are theologically oriented, just like I am. I, I like theology. But it's real easy when you're doing theology to start getting caught up into abstractions and forget the whole purpose of all that theology is so that you know Jesus. I'll give you a good example. I was in a theology bull session, I'll call it. It was a, a, a bi-weekly theology meeting in the church I'm going to now. And a 40-year-old man there started talking. That man is a walking theological dictionary. He was talking about the Protestant views of the perpetual virginity of Mary. He talks about apotheosis and the hypostatic union. And he goes on and on and on. And in the midst of his talking, he said, I could do all of this when I was 14 years old. I was raised, he was raised in a Reformed Baptist church, and he was trained in all this theology. And he said, but I didn't know God. I didn't know Jesus until two weeks before my 21st birthday. So for 20 years, he was soaked in theology and didn't know a thing about Jesus. It can happen, folks. Nothing wrong with knowing theology. I, I admire this guy for all the theology he knows, but I also admire the fact that he knows that he wasn't saved when he knew all that theology. John 10, verse 16, But I have other sheep that are not of this fold, Jesus continues. The other sheep, of course, are the Gentiles. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock and one shepherd. Of course, one flock and one shepherd means the Jews and Gentiles will be together in one church. Now, this, of course, is anathema to the Jews, the thought that these nasty dog Gentiles will be together in Jesus' flock. Of course, the, Gentile, the Jews didn't really understand what Jesus was talking about here, but that's what he was talking about. As the NIV Study Bible puts it, this is a glimpse of the future worldwide scope of the church. Now notice that Jesus says that they, the other sheep, will listen to my voice. Well, is that a prediction or is that a promise? Well, if you tend to be Arminian, that's a prediction. Well, you know, after they exercise their free will, the Gentiles will believe. Or is it a promise? Is it going to happen? Because God has determined that it will happen. Well, it's going to happen. It's a promise. Here's what Jameson Fawcett and Brown says about this. This is not the language of mere foresight that they would believe, but the expression of a promise to draw them to himself by an inward and efficacious call, which would infallibly issue in their spontaneous accession to him. John 10, 17-18, Jesus continues, This is why the Father loves me, because I am laying down my life, so I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. Now, Jesus, once again, identifies himself with the will of the Father. He does that all the time, starting in John 5 and on and on and on. He does this, identifies himself with the Father. The Father does miracles. I do miracles. The Father judges. I judge with the Father. And I obey the Father. What the Father wants, I do. And then he says here, notice he says, This is why the Father loves me, because I am laying down my life obedience is why the Father loves the Son. What a good example for us. Why does Jesus love us? Because we obey His... The one who loves me obeys my my words. I think it's John 15 where it says that, which we're getting to in a couple chapters, about five chapters. Obedience is the mark of love. It's not ooey-gooey feelings. It's obedience. Do you do what your Father tells you to do? That's how you show your love of the Father. Now, how is Jesus showing his obedience? He's laying down his life. What he means is, I'm going to lay down my life by dying on the cross, so that I may take it up again. The death was not the end of it. There was a resurrection. I may take it up again. He says, I'm going to resurrect myself. There's a scripture. I don't have it with me. 
It talks about Jesus resurrecting himself. He, the power of Jesus' resurrection was Jesus' power. It was also God's power, too. I wish I just thought of that verse, but I don't have it with me in front of my notes, so I don't I can't quote it right now. But Jesus does take his life up again. He resurrects. Notice that he says, no one takes it from me. In other words, you Jews are going to kill me, but that, uh, you weren't the ones really doing it. I'm voluntarily sacrificing myself to take for my sheep. And by the way, that doesn't mean he committed suicide. That is absolute liberal nonsense. Somebody who commits suicide is doing something out of total selfishness. Jesus is sacrificing his life for others. Would you say that a soldier who fell on a hand grenade to save his buddies in his platoon is committing suicide? No, you wouldn't say that. You would say he's a hero. It is amazing to me how blasphemous liberals will take the Bible and turn it into something evil. Or, or take Jesus' actions and turn them into something evil. Jesus says, I have the right to lay it down. I voluntarily lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. I have the right to resurrect. I have received this command from my Father. So Jesus was perfectly aware that his ministry was from the Father from the very beginning. He knew he was going to die, and he knew he was going to be resurrected. We go to verses 19 through 21. Again, a division took place among the Jews because of these words. And remember, they didn't really understand what he's talking about. Verse 20, many of them were saying he has a demon and he's crazy. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, these aren't the words of someone demon-possessed. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Now, the division that took place among the Jews, that is probably the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Jesus was winning over some of the Pharisees. We know he got Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus for two prominent examples. So some of them were beginning to wonder, my goodness, he healed the eyes of a blind man? How are you going to say he's demon-possessed? Are you crazy? What eyes of the blind man, what, eye, what blind man were they talking about? Well, I'm sure they were talking about the blind man. He was healed in the previous chapter, John 9:16, when Jesus ran into the man born blind, mixed saliva with mud, rubbed it on his eyes on the Sabbath, and said, go wash in the pool of Siloam, and the man was healed. And that caused an uproar, as we talked about all in John chapter 9. In fact, in John chapter 9, verse 16, people were saying the same thing. How can you say he's sinful? Some some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a sinful man perform such signs? And there was a division among them. So you see, Jesus was peeling them off in chapter 9. In chapter 10, we have the same thing. Some says he's crazy and got a demon. Others were saying, he ain't demon-possessed. He, he healed a, blind, a man born blind. That was I mentioned John chapter 9 of the same division amongst uh, his listeners. We can also go to John 7, verse 12. And there was a lot of discussion about him among the crowds. Now, this is not the Jewish leaders. This is the crowds. Some were saying he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he's deceiving the people. So there was division amongst the crowds. There was division amongst the Jewish leaders. Here's another example of division among the crowds in John 7:43. So a division occurred among the crowd because of him. And that's true today. Application point, there will always be a division. You preach the gospel of Jesus, and there will be people who will reject you. They'll ignore you. They might be smiling, be polite, but they go about their own selfish, sinful, self-centered ways, and they don't believe in Jesus. And some people start making fun of you. And if you are a leftist antichrist uh, who go around saying that if you say that homosexuality is a sin, you should be brought up on hate charges like what happened to a Christian Finnish legislature last week, She's being investigated by the government for hate crimes. Hate crimes because she quoted the Apostle Paul and said that homosexuality was shameful. Oh, throw her in jail. Well, that's what happens. When you preach the gospel, there's division. There's going to be people saying you're crazy and demon-possessed or that you're full of hate. And they'll try to do you in. Let me read 
talk about this as I talk about this charge of of him being demon possessed. He's got a demon and he's crazy. Some of the people were saying they said the same thing in John chapter seven verse twenty. You have a demon. The crowd responded, "Who wants to kill you?" So this see Jesus was accused of having a demon more than once. All right, I am now finished with John chapter ten verses one through twenty one, the story of the good shepherd. In our next audio, we're going to skip a lot of Jesus' Judean ministry, which was taken up in Luke, which I've already gone over in the audios on Luke. And we're going to arrive at the Feast of Dedication, where the Jews try to stone Jesus. And we're going to look at John 10, verses 22 through verse 39. I hope you listened to that, to that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.